You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. There's a quote that says, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You probably heard that somewhere through the course of your life. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with who originated that quote, sunlight is the best disinfectant, actually was from Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Louis Brandeis. He made that famous statement in a 1913 Harper's Weekly article. I'm sure some of you read that. Uh, Brandeis knew something about light. He knew that things will thrive in the darkness, bad things. But if you shine light on those things, if you bring light to those things that are growing in the darkness, people will change when they see what evil is doing. In our text today, the Apostle Paul shines some light on what was going on in the Galatian churches that needed to be exposed. Let me give you a little bit of background. Up to this point, in this letter that we've been studying, Galatians, Paul has reminded the Galatian Christians that he has the authority as an apostle to speak truth into their lives. So they need to listen up to what he has to say. And then Paul explains that there is this major problem that is percolating among the Galatian churches. And that problem was legalism, trying to get to heaven by obeying the law. Jewish Christians were saying that Paul was off his rocker, that he didn't know what he was talking about when he was talking about you were saved by grace and grace alone. They were saying you need to also comply with the Old Testament law, things like circumcision and dietary requirements in order to be a Christian. And there was this conflict of these two different ideologies, these two different theologies. It was so significant that in Acts 15, we see the problem has grown to such a point that they had a meeting between the apostles and the, uh, and the elders of the church in Jerusalem in order to figure out a solution to this problem. Paul and Barnabas, who've been planting churches all around the Galatia region, are there in Jerusalem, and they speak. And this meeting was referred to later as the Jerusalem Conference. Jerusalem Conference. It's important to note that the Apostle Peter was also there, and he makes this strong speech at the conference affirming that salvation is by grace only. And this included grace that was extended to the Gentiles as well. But later, we read through Paul's narrative in the book of Galatians. Later, some men come to Galatia And they require that the Gentile believers practice various Jewish rituals and customs, specifically circumcision, if they want to be saved. Paul had risked his life for the gospel of God's grace to regions far beyond Jerusalem. And he was not willing to allow the enemy to rob him or his churches of their freedom in Christ. It's this, it was this spiritual vigilance that Paul possessed that led him into a dramatic encounter with the Apostle Peter, Barnabas, as well as some friends who had come from the church in Jerusalem, friends of James. What we will learn from this text, what we will learn from the Apostle Paul, is just how important it is to shine the light of truth 
shine the light of truth. Now, I found this text to be rather difficult. So rather than pull out some basic themes, I thought what we would do this morning is just start in verse 11 of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or your phone and you want to follow along, turn to Galatians 2.11. I thought what we would do is just, we'll start in the verse and we'll just walk through it, through our text. And we'll kind of unpack or reveal what Paul is saying with regard to this issue, okay? Galatians 2, verse 11 says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, we have the background as to why this happened. The question is, when was it that Peter actually shows up in Antioch? It was probably, it happened probably right after uh, Paul and Barnabas arrived, had been in Antioch. And this is immediately following the Jewish, or the uh, Jerusalem conference. There's a key note here. I think it's important to, to, for us to understand, and that is this. Paul is respectful of authority. He's not being offensive to Peter here. But he is also a bulldog in defending the truth. And if Peter is off base, Paul wants to make sure that we all get on the same page. Paul's expression to Peter when he said, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. That phrase, clearly in the wrong, focuses on the inconsistencies that in Peter's conduct. And we're going to see in the following verses just exactly what Paul is talking about here. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, Before certain men came from James, that's James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He's talking about Peter. These men may have actually been sent by James to the region of Galatia. Or they may have just been merely associates of James from the church in Jerusalem. The text doesn't qualify that. It doesn't say that they were here on official church business, nor that their business was to insist that Paul or Peter, excuse me, keep away from the Gentiles. Peter, you remember had learned early on about all of this. In fact, may have been one of the very first to understand this issue with regard to Gentiles. He had a vision on a rooftop in Joppa that God communicated to him, that God allowed for this interaction with Gentiles, which led to him leaving Joppa and going to the house of Cornelius, where the gospel was preached. This was a major shift for Peter. It was a major shift within the church. It's not surprising that after some initial reluctance, a person like Peter would begin to start to enjoy exercising this new freedom in Christ by interacting with the Gentiles. Nor is it all that surprising that the same person, Peter, would suddenly feel as though he was caught in the act of doing something wrong when his former associates show up who do not approve with this new freedom. Verse 12 continues, he said, And when they arrive... He began, that's Peter, to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. These Christians who had come from the mother church in Jerusalem showed up, and Peter apparently felt like he had been caught doing something wrong, so he draws back from them, these Gentiles, as if they were repulsive, suddenly treating the Gentiles as if they were unclean, like he did when he was a Jew. 
He separated himself from the brothers who Jesus had died for. Verse 12 tells us why. It says, because he was afraid. You should underline that. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. This was a group who was requiring that a man be circumcised in order to be saved. It wasn't just good enough to have the grace of God in one's life, but they had to obey the the ritual of circumcision. Remember, this is Peter who's backing up. He's drawing back. It's the same guy who once denied knowing Jesus to a young girl in the court of the high priest before Jesus execution. This nasty old behavior was coming to the surface again. You ever have that happen? You thought you'd whip that sin or that temptation, and it comes back. Although Peter had previously decided that eating with Gentiles was just fine in the sight of God, now he is fearful how it might look to these men who were visiting from Jerusalem. Am I going to look bad? What we're going to find in the text are some key takeaways, some important takeaways to shine the light of truth. And the first one is found right here. Don't let fear keep you from standing up for the truth. Don't let fear keep you from shining the light of the truth. Peter was afraid, and thus this caused him to treat the Gentiles differently. Just because he was afraid of what these guys from Jerusalem are going to think. But it doesn't just stop there. It ripples out from Peter. Look what verse 13 says. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. The example set by Peter soon led other Jews who were believers in Antioch to withdraw from fellowshipping with the Gentiles as well. It's an important point here. They didn't stop because they thought it was wrong to eat with Gentiles. They stopped because they were afraid of what the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem might think. There's a story about William Wilberforce. If you're not familiar with him, you should probably investigate this remarkable man. In the late 1700s, when Wilberforce was just a teenager, English traders began raiding the African coast off the Gulf of Guinea, capturing between 35,000 and 50,000 Africans every year and shipping them across the Atlantic, where they were then sold into slavery. This was an extremely profitable business for many powerful people who lived in England. These people were dependent upon the wealth that flowed into their lives because of the slave trade. Under the influence of a man by the name of Thomas Clarkson, Wilberforce became absorbed with this issue of slavery. Later he would write, So enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemed, Remediable, I practice that, I promise you. Irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I will never rest until I had effected its abolition. Wilberforce was totally committed to ending slavery in England. And if he had the influence all around the world. And when it became clear that Wilberforce was not going to let this issue die in England, England, pro-slavery forces targeted him. They vilified him. They despised him. 
But Wilberforce was undeterred. He introduced a motion in the British Parliament almost every single year to eliminate slavery. When healthy, he was persistent and effective as a politician, and his anti-slavery efforts finally started to bear fruit. They broke through in 1807. Parliament finally abolished the slave trade in the British Empire, which covered much of the world at that time. Then he worked to ensure that the slave trade laws were enforced. It's one thing to pass a law, it's another thing for people to obey it. And finally, that slavery would be totally eradicated in the British Empire. Wilberforce's health prevented him from leading that last charge. But three days before he died, he heard that the final passage of the emancipation of slavery in of slaves in Great Britain was to be insured. Wilberforce played a key role, as, history, as historian G.M. Trevelyan put it in, and I quote, one of the turning events in the history of the world. And all because Thomas Clarkson had the courage to shine the light on the evils of slavery, and Wilberforce saw what was going on and said, not on my watch, not during my lifetime. He dedicated his life to stopping this horrible, horrible atrocity, and he did. Don't be afraid, ever, to shine the light of truth. You never know what the ripple effect may be. Anytime someone doesn't act on the basis of their convictions, but on the basis of what people might think, that is hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in our text is literally the word for play acting. It's taken from the theater of classical Athens, where actors wore masks to help them pretend to play a specific role. There's another important takeaway that we find here. And that is, don't underestimate the influence of your light. Don't underestimate the influence of you shining your light in this world. Look what verse 13 says. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Why is that important? Others were led astray. Peter had led them astray. But why is it so important that we recognize that even Barnabas was led astray? Well, it was bad enough that Peter had turned against the Gentiles. These were brothers of his in Antioch. But it was a crushing blow for the Gentiles that Barnabas would also turn against them. You see, Barnabas had been active in the work of Gentile evangelism from the very beginning. He had known the Antioch Christians for many, many years. And of all the people on the earth, Barnabas would have been the last person to ever back away from them. He would have been the one guy who would have stood with them when everyone else would have backed away. But because of Peter's influence, he led him astray. Don't underestimate your influence when it comes to shining the light. And I caution you, You can lead people in the wrong direction if you're not careful, just like Peter did with Barnabas and other Jewish believers in Antioch. Verse 14, 
when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul uses a phrase here that's it's interesting. The phrase is not acting in line with the truth. Not acting in line with is literally translated not walking right or not walking straight. This could mean that you're walking with a limp or you're not walking straight toward the goal, but it most likely means not walking on the right road. Peter and the others were out of line with the direction of the Jerusalem conference, and more than that, they were out of line with the direct decree from God. And Peter knew it. He'd seen it on that rooftop in Joppa. So Paul says, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul, Paul may have gone firsthand to Peter and confronted him privately, but Peter's sin was not a private sin. It was a public one which had drawn half the church into committing the same sin. This called for a public rebuke. Peter was cautiously leaving behind his Jewish roots and was beginning to relax in this new freedom with Gentile believers, but now all of a sudden he insisted that the Gentiles be more Jewish than he himself was or he couldn't have fellowship with them. That makes no sense. And so Paul calls him out on it. And then in verse 15, it's kind of an interesting verse. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not, quote, Gentile sinners, unquote. It seems as though most scholars think Paul has been addressing Peter in this letter kind of one-on-one. And now he starts to expand this out at this point. This message becomes more uh, the tone of a public sermon. And he uses a phrase here. He calls these Gentiles, not just Gentiles, but he, he calls them, and it's in quotations, Gentile sinners. It seems to be a reminder that it had always been this way for Jews, this knee-jerk reaction for every Jew to always refer to everyone who is outside of God's covenant as a sinner. Remember when we used to call them Gentile sinners? In fact, the name Gentile is almost synonymous with that uncleanness. But with the establishment of God's new covenant, the covenant of grace, Gentiles were now welcome in the family of God also. Verse 16, Paul continues the thought. He says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. This is where Paul shines light on a flawed theology of the legalists or the Judaizers. Which brings us to the third important point that we need to take away from this talk today. And that is bad, th- bad theology is exposed in the light of truth. When you shine light on bad theology, truth will be revealed. Paul in this verse talks about being justified. To be justified is to be pronounced legally innocent or as David defined a couple weeks ago. It's just as if I'd paid the penalty for my sin. What does it it mean? How does a person get to be justified? 
If it's that important, how, how does a person get to be justified? Well, there are really only two ways we find in Scripture. The first one is keep God's law so carefully and completely to earn God's approval. Here's the reality about that. That is a pipe dream. It can never happen. In fact, three times in this verse, Paul denies that this is the way that justification happens. Paul's own experience had shown that law-keeping doesn't work. In fact, the key fact here is observing the law so flawlessly in order to earn salvation has never been accomplished by any other person except Jesus Christ. Well, the other approach in how to be justified, the only other path, is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't do that, and you're not perfect under the law, you will always have your sin. A person has to stop relying on their own ability to keep the rules and throws himself or herself at the foot of the cross. It's there he relies on the perfection of Jesus instead of his own merits. Trusting in Jesus is what Scripture calls faith. And biblical faith is simply trusting Jesus and the promises that he's made, being confident that his blood can cleanse us and give us a right standing before God. Anybody need that today? Verse 16 continues, So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ. As Peter hears this, as he reads this, he could not agree more with the Apostle Paul's statement. He knows that Paul is dead solid right on this. Peter himself had said almost the same thing at the Jerusalem conference. Listen to part of his sermon in Acts 15, verse 9 and verse 11. He said, he, he's talking about God, made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter knew that Paul was right. He knew it. Verse 16, he continues, Paul does, and not by observing the law. He's talking about justification again. Not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one can be justified. You know, the Jewish rabbis used to teach that the misuse of the law of Moses would fail to save a person. But Paul, in his teaching here, goes a little broader than that. It's not just the misuse, it is any use of the law will fail to save a person. It was only by faith in Jesus Christ that someone could be saved. And Paul wants to make sure everybody in the region of Galatia knows that. Verse 17 is an interesting verse. It says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners... Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not, Paul says. In Paul's day, like today, there are arguments that are directed at the way that a person is saved. There are a lot of different belief systems on how a person gets into eternity. So in this verse and the verses following, Paul begins to answer these arguments. Now there are several interpretations of what this verse means. But the wording, because the wording is somewhat ambiguous, I think that the best interpretation is that Paul is referring to the basic objection to the doctrine of justification by faith, if context has any influence on 
what this verse means. I think that's what he's talking about. Paul refutes the argument that to eliminate the law entirely, which is what he is doing in this, in this message, is to encourage godless living. That's what people believe. That if you eliminate the law, people will just be living without rules. Here's what the argument would sound like. Your doctrine of justification by faith is dangerous, Paul. If By eliminating the law, you also eliminate a man's moral responsibility. If a person can be made righteous simply by believing that Jesus died for him, why then would he bother to keep the law? Or for that matter, why would he bother to live by any standard of morality at all? There's no need to be good. The result of your doctrine, Paul, is that men will believe in Jesus, but after that they will do as they desire. And Paul comes with a very strong, abrupt reply. The form of his response suggests that he was aware of the possibility that Christians may sin. In fact, the truth is, Christians actually do sin. In fact, some of us have gotten really good at it, in spite of the grace of God. In spite of the love that God has shown us, we still continue to sin. And I think Paul knew that. But this is not the result of the doctrine of justification by faith. And Jesus is not responsible for this. We are. Such a thought that Jesus is responsible for our sins is repulsive. In fact, the Apostle Paul Paul says, absolutely not. No way. Never would be true. If there is sin, as Paul acknowledges indirectly in the very next verse, which we'll read in just a second, Man himself is responsible. Or as Paul put it in verse 18, he said, I am a lawbreaker. I'm the sinner here. Jesus didn't cause this. He's not responsible for this. Let's look at verse 18. He said, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. There's another objection that Paul answers. And it's the possibility that someone might try to reestablish the Old Testament laws and require that the church obey them. And Paul says that the best that could come from going back to the Old Testament law would, just to be, would be just to prove once more that he is a lawbreaker. Or that those who, of us who practice the law and cannot live up to it, we are sinners. That's all that's going to reveal. Verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Remember, the purpose of the law was to reveal sin, to point out that man is condemned to death. And it had done its work in the Apostle Paul. The holy demands of the law had exposed Paul's sinfulness, and he knew he deserved death. And having been crushed under the expectations of the law and convinced of his inability to save himself through the law, Paul found real life in Jesus Christ, as many of you have. And Jesus met the demands of the law, and he paid the penalty that Paul had incurred by his sins. And now Paul was free to live for God. Verse 20, my favorite verse in this whole text. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
It's interesting, he uses the same word that's describes, that describes the criminals who were crucified with Jesus in Matthew 27. He's talking about Jesus' execution. And Paul says, we are put to death, just like that. When Jesus died, we died too. And when we choose to be united with Jesus' death, it happens through baptism. Listen to what Romans 6 says, verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The law carried out on Jesus its demands against us, having killed him, could do nothing more to him. Or to us, because we are in him. Paul says that he no longer lives his life in the sense that he is controlling his life. He has taken up his cross. He has denied himself. And now he lives only for Jesus. And Christ lives in me, he says. His Lord not only permits him to live, but he's taken up residence in Paul as he has in every believer who's ever been buried with Jesus in the watery grave of baptism. He's taken up residence in Paul to help direct his life in real time, in the moment, as he faces the challenges. Listen to the promise that we have of that. Found in Acts 2, 38. Peter was asked, what do we have to do by the crowds? And he, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then look at the promise. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God deposited into the life of the believer to coach him and direct him and to love him through the journey of life until they meet together in glory. Verse 20 continues. He says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul will say something very similar to the Philippians, only more direct. He said, To live is Christ. To live is Jesus for the believer. We are his hands and feet. We are his ambassadors called to do his will. And this is all made possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. Which brings us to our fourth key important takeaway to shining the light of truth. And that is always spotlight the cross of Jesus. You see, the the sacrifice of Jesus is the foundation of the gospel and of the Christian faith. It is pivotal in Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. In fact, it was this atoning sacrifice that they were losing sight of. They were starting to focus on the law and less on the cross. Either they must honor that sacrifice and trust it for their salvation, or they will end up abandoning it and having to try to earn their salvation through keeping the law. Never, never lose sight of the importance of the cross. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. It never crossed my mind that anyone would set it aside, the grace of God, but I started 
to ask the question, how would someone set aside the grace of God? And I realize, if they're studying this, there's really only two ways that that happens. The first one is one might reject it as untrue, just right outright. That's not true. I don't believe that. More dangerously, someone might accept it, the grace of God, and then go on and live as if it makes, uh, makes no difference in their life. And that's what the Galatians were in grave danger of doing. They were in grave danger of nullifying the grace of God by returning to the Old Testament law and trying to earn their salvation by doing good. Verse 21 continues, For if righteousness can be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul closes this message with this powerful point. If the law had worked, then Jesus' death was a total waste. But the truth is, the law didn't work. Jesus certainly didn't die for nothing. You see, a man cannot gain right standing with God through keeping the law by being good enough. He needs the grace of God. He needs to be baptized into Christ's death. He needs to share in Christ's death. Without it, he's doomed. So let me ask you very quickly as I pull this message together, I want to ask you two questions. The first is, have I been saved by the grace of God Or am I trying to do this on my own by being good enough? Somehow God's going to give me a pass. He's going to say, hey, you know what? You got 70%. That's a C. I'll pass you. And the truth is, you know, it's only the gospel that saves us. The gospel of the grace of God found only in Jesus. Grace is the only way. And grace is defined as this. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a great way to remember what the cost of grace was and why God loved you so much that he would extend that grace to you. Am I trusting in myself for salvation? Am I trusting in my own morality or my good works or maybe even my religion? If so, then I'm I'm really not the Christian that Paul talks about here in Galatians. For a true Christian is one who is all in on Jesus alone. The second question I want to ask you is, am I acting in line with the truth of the gospel? It's a question Paul asks in verse 14 of the text. You see, the best way to defend the truth, shine the light of the truth, is to live the truth. My verbal defense of the gospel will accomplish very little if my life contradicts what I say. I think that's why John wrote in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Have you accepted the gospel? Are you living the gospel in your life if you haven't put your faith in Jesus? You're trying to be good enough. I hope today the word is speaking to you. The spirit of God is nudging you to to see that you need Jesus. And I'm going to close this with a prayer. And then after that, I'm going to be down here to your right. I'd love to talk with you if you want to explore this this whole idea of the grace of God a little further. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Jesus, I thank you for paying the price for my sin, for our sins. And I pray, God, that every one of us will come to that point in our lives where we realize 
the need to surrender ourselves to you. You're the hope. You're the only hope that we have, Lord. I pray that every one of us who's a follower of yours, God, will shine the light of truth. God, give us courage and boldness not to be a jerk about it, but to stand up and let this little light of mine shine. Let it shine. Let it shine for all the world to see. God, help us to shine the light of truth so the world will know of the love you have for them. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen.